Hello and a warm welcome to episode number 9 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. As ever, I'm Paul, the host and True Crime Enthusiast of the title, and as we always start, it's with a big thank you to you guys for joining me. I do hope you're all well, and if you aren't, then I hope you are soon. I've had a busy week here at the podcast, and as I explained last week, this week is another instance where I have chopped and changed the running order of episodes. The case this week, although it's a fascinating one, is groundbreaking and one I would imagine any student of true crime to if not be very familiar with, then to at least have heard of. As a result, it's a case I wouldn't normally have covered, but it's been topical of late and has been in the news, and after some online discussions in the past week, and the realisation that the anniversary of where it all started is exactly 34 years ago this very day, the 21st of November, I felt compelled to research, write and put out an episode for the anniversary. So as I have changed the episode intended for this week and wrote a different one, I am a couple ahead, and next week will be the case from the True Crime Enthusiast blog archives that I hinted about on last week's episode. And it's a shocking case, so please be warned. As I'm ahead, it gives me ample time to put the research in and write up a two-part episode that will be coming up soon concerning a case from the UK that is, as usual, an overlooked one. And it's a fascinating case also, one I'm very surprised isn't covered more often. But more details on that soon. Watch out for the teaser pictures that I put out on Instagram. Before we get to this week's case, as always, it's here where I share the love and recommend a podcast or blog that I thoroughly enjoy. This week's is Murder Mile. It's again a UK-based one, and the host Mike has taken his popular and well-established Murder Mile tour of London and recently turned it into a podcast, so it's a relatively new one. The tour looks great. If I lived down in the smoke, I'd have to go on it. And he does a bit where he gets all the people on the tour to pose as though they're strangling each other. It looks a right laugh as well as being interesting and is deservedly very successful. But the podcast is equally as good and the research that goes into each episode is very commendable. They especially appeal to me because they're obscure and bring to the listener interesting accounts of cases that aren't readily accessible or very often overlooked. For example, who's familiar with the Denmark Place Fire? No? And it's one of Britain's worst ever mass murders. Yeah, it's largely unknown. It's cases like this that Mike researches and puts out which is impressive to me. Well worth checking out. Dedication to each of the cases featured all taking place within a single square mile of the city, hence the title. Catch him on social media under the moniker Murder Mile. He's a nice guy and he's very approachable. And do check out this podcast if you haven't already. You won't be disappointed. But back to my own efforts though, and this week's case on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Today, DNA profiling is commonplace and universally accepted. It's a marvellous scientific tool and arguably the most valuable available to modern forensic investigators. It's an amazing discovery and to think that now, a sample even from years before can be tested and the unique characteristics drawn from it that can identify a single individual with a billion to one chance of it being anybody other than that person. It's helped convict countless killers and seems to have been around as an investigative tool forever. Yet the science of it is just over 30 years old. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we look back at the very first case in which this pioneering test helped convict a killer and prove the innocence of another man. It concerns two murders three years apart 
that took place in the UK county of Leicestershire, the first of which took place exactly 34 years ago to this very day. Please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of the Enderby murders. On Monday the 21st of November 1983, 15-year-old Linda Mann left her family home in the Leicestershire village of Narborough on her way to visit a couple of school friends and to pay off some money that she owed to the mother of one of these friends towards the price of the black donkey jacket that she put on that evening to go out. That evening was cold and frosty and there was a full moon, so the conscientious girl that she was Linda told her parents that she would be home no later than 10pm that evening and set out just after 7 o'clock p.m. Linda arrived at her first friend's house at about quarter past seven and duly paid the friend's mother the latest instalment towards paying off the coat, which was about £1.50 in total. She didn't stay too long there, anxious to finish her relay of visits and get home from out of the cold, and she left to head on to her next friend's house. She arrived there shortly afterwards picked up a record that her friend had borrowed from her and left to return home at about 7.30pm. Linda walked off along Forest Road in Narborough. Now this leads to a footpath known in the local area as the Black Pad. This is a shortcut between the villages of Narborough and Enderby and it borders the Carlton Hayes Psychiatric Hospital in the area and it was the most direct and quickest route for Linda to take home from her friend's house. Linda never was to make it home that evening. Her mother and stepfather had been out at a function that evening and had arrived home at about 1am to find the house in darkness with no sign of Linda. With the instinct that something was very wrong, her stepfather Edward Eastwood had gone out looking for her. He'd made a quick tour of streets and alleyways close to the family home to see if he could find her and had even had a cursory look down the black pad footpath but to no avail. At 1.30am, he called police and reported Linda as a missing person. Police took this seriously. Linda was not a flighty type of girl and wouldn't be staying out at a friend's house or with a boyfriend. Nor was she the type of girl to have run away. She was happy at home and was doing well in the fifth year of school at Lutterworth Grammar School. An urgent missing persons inquiry began and was coordinated throughout the night. But by 7.30am the next morning... Tuesday 22nd of November 1983, it was to turn into a murder inquiry. A hospital porter on his way to work that morning was walking, as usual, up the black pad when at about 7.20 he noticed the body of a young girl lying face up in the grass just off the edge of the path. The girl was naked from the waist down and her clothing, her shoes, jeans and underwear had been removed and piled up a few feet away. She had a black donkey jacket on and a scarf pulled tightly around her neck. From the description that Linda's parents had given police of what she had been wearing and a photograph of Linda that police had, it was sadly confirmed shortly after the discovery that this was indeed Linda Mann. A post-mortem examination determined that Linda had been raped and strangled with her own scarf and the pathologist noticed that Linda had abrasions to her chin and front of her neck and bruising to her upper chest. Semen samples from the killer were taken from the body, and showed Linda's killer to be a Group A secretor, classified as PGM1+. This was rare, and it narrowed the search possibilities down to about a tenth of the male population of the United Kingdom. 
There was a high sperm count in the samples, which indicated a man in his younger years, so inquiries that followed focused upon males in the local area between the ages of 13 and 34 years old. The murder inquiry was headed by Detective Chief Superintendent David Baker, the head of Leicestershire CID, and an incident room was set up in Narborough Village. Believing it likely that the killer was a local man, the files on all known local sex offenders were checked, and details of all sex crimes that had occurred in the local area, from indecent exposure to rape, were fed into police computers to create a reference bank that any names of suspects that arose during the inquiry could be checked against. Meanwhile, police looked at the residents and daycare outpatients from the Carlton Hayes Hospital, some 600 or so in number, thinking that Linda's killer might possibly be one of them. They would certainly be someone familiar with the local area, especially the Black Pad, or they may turn out to be an important witness at the very least. All patients and staff at the hospital were interviewed throughout the inquiry, but this did not lead to any breakthroughs. Linda's body was not released for burial until February 1984, by which time the 150-strong team of detectives had visited every house in Narborough and the neighbouring villages of Enderby and Littlethorpe to make routine house-to-house inquiries. Several leads had been chased up, including reports of a youth with a spiky punk haircut seen with a girl dressed like Linda on the evening of the murder. A mystery jogger in street clothes was also reported as having been seen that evening, as well as a courting couple in a bus stop nearby to the Black Pad who were also appealed for. None of these leads came to anything, however. Police had made appeals in local and national newspapers, photo fits of the people mentioned were prominently displayed, and a video of the investigation was made and shown around schools and business premises in the local area. But the trail began to go cold, and by August 1984 the inquiry had been scaled down. This did not sit easy with Leicestershire police, as they had a brutal and dangerous killer on the loose who could strike again. But crimes do not wait in line, and police resources and manpower were needed elsewhere. The investigation was at a standstill, and although it was not closed, it was effectively shelved. But along with police, local people did not forget either. Parents kept a close eye on their teenagers following Linda's murder and warned them against staying out late and to keep away from lonely paths, knowing that a killer has still not been brought to justice. Of course, whenever there's an unsolved murder among any community, it causes unease and the predominant thought is, will this guy strike again? That question was answered just over two and a half years after the murder of Linda Mann. Leicestershire police received a telephone call that immediately made them think back to the unsolved case of Linda Mann at 9.40pm on Thursday the 31st of July 1986. It was another frantic set of parents, reporting yet another missing girl. 15-year-old Dawn Ashworth was a pupil at the same school that Linda had attended, Lutterworth Grammar School, although there are no reports that the two girls knew each other. Dawn being a couple of years younger than Linda would have been in 1986. She lived with her family, her parents Robin and Barbara Ashworth, in a house on Mill Lane in the village of Enderby, just the next village up from Narborough. Dawn had finished her holiday job working in a local newsagent that afternoon at 3.30pm and had called in briefly at home before telling her parents that she was off to visit friends who lived in nearby Narborough. 
Dawn had walked towards Narborough via a secluded footpath known as Ten Pound Lane, which skirted the nearby M1 motorway. When she arrived at Narborough, her friends were not home, so Dawn had set off retracing her steps back towards her home in Enderby at about 4.30pm. Does this sound sadly familiar? She never arrived home. Her parents first grew ticked off, then more and more concerned. They went out looking for her, but to no avail, and finally, by that evening, Dawn was reported to police as a missing person. By the following morning, a full-scale police operation had been launched, with tracker dogs and police search specialists combing the area. House-to-house inquiries began throughout the local area and neighbouring villages, and the local press had jumped on the story. They were all too quick to point out the similarities in victimology and location between Dawn and Linda Mann just a few years previously, and the majority of readers and villagers who were involved in assisting with the search were convinced that, tragically, Linda Mann's killer had struck again. On the 2nd of August, the newspapers were full of pleas from Dawn's distraught parents for anyone who had abducted her to release her unharmed. As the morning newspapers were hitting the floor through people's letterboxes that morning, however, police made the first of two finds that day. Dawn's denim jacket was found discarded quite close to a motorway flyover bridge that spanned the M1 and it was quite close to £10 Lane. But just a little later the same morning, police found Dawn's body. She had been hidden in a thicket in a field just off £10 Lane and like Linda, was found in a state of undress. She was found lying on her left side and was naked from the waist down. She had abrasions on her upper left forehead and bruising across the left side of her face. There was a cut inside her mouth caused by the braces Dawn had been wearing on her teeth and other scratches to her neck and chest. The later post-mortem was to determine that she had been raped and sodomised and strangled manually from behind perhaps with the use of a martial arts type stranglehold. In the opinion of the pathologist, the sexual assault had occurred after strangulation, therefore after death. The killer had then dragged the body into the thicket and covered her with foliage and freshly cut grass before making his escape. The missing persons inquiry was relaunched as a murder inquiry now, and many of the officers who were now involved found themselves for the second time in three years looking for a sadistic sex killer. The consensus was among the investigating team that Linda's killer had struck again, and Detective Chief Superintendent David Baker was once again placed in command of the investigation. As with Linda's investigation, a reconstruction was made of Dawn's last known movements, and a young policewoman dressed in identical clothing as to what Dawn was wearing when last seen alive retraced her steps along £10 Lane towards Narborough and back at the same time of day. The reconstruction was filmed and shown as an early appeal on Crime Watch UK, back in the days when it was proper Crime Watch and proper gripping stuff. Incidentally, there were a few videos of random old episodes of Crime Watch that some godsend has uploaded to YouTube, and Dawn's reconstruction is featured on one of the programmes available. Well worth checking out. I passed many an hour watching them and they're still as great now. It's an own goal there, BBC, cancelling it. Information did come in at a good rate following this reconstruction, but after the initial flurry, it turned out that time and police resources had been directed towards a number of leads that ultimately turned out to lead nowhere. 
These included reports of a young man who was seen to have dashed across the motorway about 5.30pm on the day of the murder and a man who was seen crouching in a hedgerow by two witnesses very close to the murder scene that afternoon. But the most persistent reports that came in was a crucial sighting of a motorcyclist with a red crash helmet who had been seen by several independent witnesses close to the footbridge near where Dawn's denim jacket was found between 4.30pm and 5.30pm on the day Dawn had vanished. Detectives once again looked at the Linda Mann investigation. Although nearly three years separated both killings, the fact that two such killings with near-identical victims in one small geographical area meant there was a very real possibility that there was a serial killer on the loose. And if it was the same man, detectives saw that there were three likely possibilities. That he was a patient from Carlton Hayes Hospital, which was very close to the murder scenes. That he was a complete stranger and was using the nearby M1 motorway to escape. Or that most likely he was a local man familiar with the footpaths and lanes of the Narbra and Enderby areas. It was with this thinking of the latter possibility that helped police focus upon a suspect. At the time of Linda Mann's murder, they had spoken to a 14-year-old youth who lived in Narborough called Richard Buckland. Buckland was well known in the area as he was big for his age yet childlike, with him being possibly mentally subnormal. He was reported to police investigating at the time as he had a fondness for jumping out at women and girls to give them a fright, which he apparently found amusing, and at the time of Linda's murder, he had been visited at home and spoken to. However, he was not classed as a serious suspect in the murder. By 1986, Buckland was working at Carlton Hayes Hospital as a kitchen porter and drew attention to himself several times over the course of the initial stages of the investigation into Dawn Ashworth's murder. As £10 Lane was being sealed off as a potential crime scene, Buckland was noticed by officers sat astride his motorcycle with his red crash helmet on the handlebars. The day after Dawn's body was discovered, Buckland approached a police checkpoint in the area at 9.20pm at night and told them that he had seen Dawn walking near the footpath on the night she was killed. Then on Thursday the 7th of August, another employee at Carlton Hayes went to police telling them that Buckland had told him a story that Dawn's body had been found, as quoted by the employee, hanging from a tree close to the M1 bridge in a hedge near a gate. Crucially, Buckland had told the employee this on the 1st of August, the day before Dawn's body was found. Detectives arrested Richard Buckland at his home in Narborough at 5am on the morning of Friday the 8th of August, and he was taken to Wigston Police Station for questioning. By 8.10am, he had begun a series of bizarre interviews where he deviated from giving straight answers to go off on tangents and totally contradict things he had previously said. At other points, he claimed that he could not remember what had happened. He at times described being out on his motorcycle on the afternoon of the 31st of July and that he had seen Dawn walking near the motorway footbridge. He claimed he had intended to chat to her, but had instead taken the bike home as it had an oil leak. Then he changed his story admitting he'd stopped under the bridge. Then he denied telling his colleague the story about Dawn's body hanging in the hedge, and instead claimed it had been the colleague who had in fact told him the story. Then he claimed he had in fact chatted to Dawn before going home. 
Then he denied everything. This went on for the entire day, until Buckland eventually described seeing a man with a stick who had followed him and Dawn as they had chatted. But then he described how he had struggled with Dawn, but then his head had begun spinning and his mind had gone blank. He then retracted this confession, and when asked why he had made it, Buckland replied, To settle your story. Later, Buckland was to give an account of how he had overpowered Dawn, suffocated her, and had sex with her. Then he described how he had hidden the body in the undergrowth near Ten Pound Lane. Surprisingly, and to the listener, not much credence would be given to Buckland's contradictory tale. On Saturday 9th of August, the statement was typed out, and with all the incriminating points that he had confessed to outlined in it, Buckland signed it in the appropriate places. He was remanded in custody, and on Monday the 11th of August, he was charged with the murder of Dawn Ashworth, then returned to custody to await trial. But there was a problem, because despite however much Buckland had incriminated himself when talking about Dawn Ashworth, he had said nothing about, and when asked, was to categorically deny any involvement with the murder of Linda Mann three years before. Could it be possible that there were two separate killers, and one was still out there? Buckland's father was desperate to clear his son's name, as he steadfastly believed in his innocence, and he decided to try a new approach, although interestingly, Leicestershire police were to later claim that they were actually the ones to instigate the groundbreaking new approach, to ensure that, as they believed, the murders of Linda and Dawn were definitely linked. Whoever it was, the approach was to make legal history with its end result. In September 1984, Dr Alec Jeffries, who was a geneticist at Leicester University researching the evolution of human genes, had discovered a technique that could display a pattern of the genetic material known as DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid. Good points in a quiz if you know the full title of that. I was once on a team that won 50 quid with that answer. Nowadays, if you stick on an episode of CSI Burton-upon-Trent or wherever they got up to, I was never a fan, and DNA profiling is drop of a hat and as widely accepted as the internet or how much of a waste of skin the Kardashians are. But in 1984, it was groundbreaking. I'm not going to launch into the history of DNA profiling here. Shame on you as a true crime fan if you don't know the ins and outs of it already. No, I'm just kidding. But an idiot's guide is as follows. In 1984, Dr. Jeffries had discovered that this was unique to every single individual except identical twins. Every individual's DNA had a unique code that could be derived from a wide range of human body tissue, including blood, saliva, semen and hair follicles. Before 1986, the science had been used predominantly in paternity cases or immigration cases, but here was a chance to realise its potential in a criminal case. A test could be made that would prove once and for all if Buckland was the killer he had confessed to be, or was this attention-seeking that had gone too far. As they had samples of the killer's semen from the body of Dawn Ashworth, and samples from the crime scene from the Linda Mann murder kept in storage that could be tested, a blood sample from Richard Buckland was given to Dr. Jeffries. Within weeks, the test results were back. Dr. Jeffries had first tested the semen samples that were retained from the Linda Mann investigation against Buckland's blood sample, 
and his test incontrovertibly showed that Buckland was not the rapist and killer of Linda Mann. He had then tested Buckland's blood sample against the semen recovered from Dawn Ashworth's body, and once again, Buckland was shown to be innocent of the rape and murder of Dawn Ashworth. On the 21st of November 1986, the day Buckland's murder trial was due to begin at Leicester Crown Court, he instead became the first murder suspect in legal history to be freed on the basis of the test that is commonly known today as DNA profiling. But it also meant that the police were now back at square one with no suspects. But if anything positive had come out of the test that had exonerated Buckland, it was confirmation that the DNA profile in the samples from each scene was identical, meaning that the same man had indeed committed both crimes. Leicestershire Police consulted a criminal psychologist to come up with a profile of the killer, and psychologist Dr Paul Britton was given access to the case files of both murder investigations. Britton was able to point the killer as being a local man or someone with good local knowledge, a single offender who was a careful planner and who would not appear as a loner or standout suspect. He also reasoned that the killer was someone older and more secure, possibly married or in a relationship, and of average to above average intelligence, and able to control and present a facade of normality. He was also a sexual psychopath, whose nature was driven by deviant fantasy where he had an urge for sexual control and domination that he had to express through the act of overpowering, raping and killing a female. Both girls were on the verge of womanhood and had a similar look that would have excited the killer, meaning that he had a type, and these would not be his first offences. A sexual deviant does not start offending at this level, this is built up to by often beginning with things such as indecent exposure and ascending to sexual assaults. He would have come to police attention before for crimes of this type. Paul Britton also listened to the taped interviews with Richard Buckland and concluded that in his opinion, Buckland had possibly witnessed the murder or had found the body and fled, fearing he may be blamed. It's likely that he was the man seen crouching in the hedgerow and possibly even the young man spotted fleeing across the road. He had subsequently confessed, perhaps through some misguided attention-seeking, and had spent nearly three months awaiting trial for a crime he had not committed, before being cleared by the DNA test. The DNA test had given police another idea, and in another groundbreaking move, police announced they were about to embark upon a mass blood and saliva sampling of the young male population of the villages of Enderby, Narborough and Littlethorpe, still convinced that this was a local man they were hunting. It may be a time-consuming process, but they reasoned that if a person had nothing to hide, they wouldn't mind complying and could be eliminated from the inquiry by a simple test. Anyone who did refuse the voluntary test would automatically draw suspicion to themselves, and this would give police a suspect list that they could examine. All males between the ages of 17 and 34 in the three villages, who did not already have a strong alibi for both murders, would be asked to give samples voluntarily, and letters requesting a sample were sent out to all males who qualified, along with letters to males who had lived and worked in the village at the relevant periods, or who had attended Carlton Hayes Hospital at the time. Two test centres were set up, manned by five doctors, and these worked three evenings and one morning a week. They took blood and saliva samples from volunteers who attended, 
and any donor who was found to be a PGM1 plus A secretor would then have his sample sent on further for the DNA profiling test. By the end of January 1987, a thousand donors had given samples. This rose to 3,500 by the third week of April 1987, and by the end of July that year, it was reported that 4,195 males had given blood, of which 3,556 had been eliminated from the inquiry. There were still 400 males who awaited testing, and the search was on for a further 20 males who had left the area. But police had considered from the outset of the time-consuming, vast exercise that the killer would find a way to avoid the testing, knowing that his guilt would be proven. When volunteers turned up for testing, they had to bring some form of identification with them. But back in 1987, driving licences did not have photographs on them, so it was easy for a substitute volunteer to give a sample in lieu of a named person. If this had happened, the mass exercise, or the blooding, as it is now commonly referred to, would have been an enormous waste of manpower, time and money. By September 1987, sporadic blood testing was still going on, but nearly all males in the target group had been tested and eliminated. Under pressure from the powers that be due to the perceived failure of the blooding to identify the killer, police desperately needed a break in the investigation. It came on the 18th of September. A Leicester police officer contacted the murder squad at the incident room and reported that his father, who was the landlord of a Leicester pub called the Clarendon, had told him a story that he'd been told by the manageress of a nearby bakery called Hampshire's. On Saturday the 1st of August 1987, the manageress, Mrs Jackie Foggin, had attended the pub that lunchtime with several other bakery employees and eventually the conversation had come around to the still ongoing mass testing. One of the employees with her at the pub that day, 24-year-old oven hand Ian Kelly, casually remarked to the others seated around the table. Colin had me do that blood test for him, the one for that murder inquiry. The Colin he was referring to was a 27-year-old baker at Hampshire's called Colin Pitchfork. Ian Kelly had gone on to say that Pitchfork had approached him and asked him to take the test for him, with Pitchfork claiming that he had already taken the test for someone else, a friend of his who had a history of sexual offences and who was afraid of the police as a result. He explained that he had only moved to the village of Littlethorpe some weeks after the murder of Linda Mann, and he hadn't thought the police would bother him because of this. Then another bakery worker had chipped in and told that Pitchfork had approached him also, offering him £200 to take the test for him. Yet another claimed he had offered him £50 to do so, and both men had flatly refused. Ian Kelly had, however, believed the story and had agreed to take the test for Pitchfork, so Pitchfork had replaced his own photograph in his passport with a photograph of Ian Kelly, then had driven him to the testing centre and had waited outside whilst Kelly went in to be tested. Jackie Foggin had sat on this information uneasily for a number of weeks, not knowing what to do, and had finally decided to contact the policeman's son of the Clarendon landlord and to tell him the information. Murder squad detectives looked up the name of Colin Pitchfork in the records of their house-to-house inquiries. He had been routinely questioned during both the Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth investigations, 
as he lived in Littlethorpe. At the time, he had not been classed as a serious suspect as he had only moved to Littlethorpe from Leicester a few weeks after the murder of Linda. But importantly, they found that the signature on the house-to-house inquiry form and the signature on the blood testing form were different. They did not match at all. On Saturday the 19th of September, Ian Kelly was arrested at his home for conspiracy to pervert the course of justice and Kelly immediately broke down and confirmed Jackie's story that he had indeed taken the blood test for Colin Pitchfork. He gave detectives the same reasoning that Pitchfork had given about why he needed a substitute to do the test for him and explained how Pitchfork had substituted Kelly's photograph for his picture in his own passport to circumvent the identification test. Whilst Kelly was charged with conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, for which he was ultimately sentenced to 18 months imprisonment, suspended for two years, detectives went to Colin Pitchfork's house at 20 Haybarn Close, Littlethorpe, to take him into custody. When detectives arrived at the house at 5.45pm, Pitchfork was waiting for them, perhaps resigned to the fact because he knew that a further DNA test would have conclusive results. Pitchfork almost immediately confessed to the rape and murder of both Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth. He was arrested and cautioned, and then one of the detectives asked him, Why Dawn Ashworth? Pitchfork merely shrugged and replied, Opportunity. She was there, and I was there. To which his shocked young wife slapped him. Colin Pitchfork was born in Leicester on the 23rd of March 1960, and was brought up there. He was from a middle-class Leicestershire family and was one of three children, but Colin soon became the black sheep of the family. His brother and sister both excelled in school and went to university to study engineering and medicine respectively, whereas Colin left school at age 16 with no academic qualifications, but an interest in and a flair for art. He went on from leaving school to work at Hampshire's Bakery in Leicester and had soon become a talented baker even appearing in the local press due to a 21st birthday cake he had made which was shaped like a motorcycle. Must have been a bit of a slow news day there. Pitchfork was genuinely fond of children also, and he even worked as a volunteer at the Leicester Dr Bernardo's children's home, where he met his future wife, a social worker who he married in 1981. The couple had a baby son the following year. As a child, Pitchfork had been a normal kid, but when he reached puberty, he developed a serious sexual compulsion to indecently expose himself. By the end of his teenage years, he'd become an obsessive flasher and had been caught and convicted twice for indecently exposing himself to women in secluded places. He had received counselling for this as an outpatient at Carlton Hayes Hospital, but he'd continued to offend and by his own admission, when arrested, had flashed to more than a thousand women sometimes even going further than flashing. On one occasion, he had picked up a female hitchhiker, Carol Knight, and had tried to attack her as he drove. However, she had managed to fight him off, and when he tried to keep her in the car and abduct her, she had managed to escape from the vehicle. With a clear pattern set here of his deviant sexual drives taking an ominously dark turn, eventually, in November 1983, the flashing turned to murder. When questioned, Pitchfork described in a cold, remorseless way what had happened on the night Linda Mann was murdered. 
He described how he had dropped his wife off at an evening class that she was taking in Leicester on the night of the 21st of November 1983 at 7 o'clock, and then with his sleeping infant son in a carry cot in the back of the car, had driven around looking for a young girl to flash at. He drove from Leicester to Narborough, and as he had turned up Forest Road beside the Carlton Hayes Hospital, he had passed Linda walking back towards Enderby. Pitchfork had stopped his car in a nearby driveway and had waited under a street lamp as Linda approached him. He then exposed himself to her and the frightened girl had run not towards Enderby but in her panic had run up into the darkness of the black pad and this excited Pitchfork. Pitchfork's own words are chilling when describing this, saying This is the thing I don't understand about flashing. 1% of the time you get someone who goes mad and screams and you have to disappear quick. But all the others walk by you, just walk by you and ignore you. But she turned and ran into a dark footpath. She backed herself into a corner. Her two big mistakes were running into the footpath and saying, What about your wife? She'd seen my wedding ring. He went on to claim that Linda had agreed to sex with him if he didn't hurt her but he had decided to strangle her because he feared she could identify him from his earring, his wedding ring and his thinning hair. After raping and strangling Linda, he returned to his car where his infant son still slept and then returned to pick his wife up from her class as if nothing had happened. Dawn Ashworth, Pitchfork claimed, had also started out as another routine flashing exercise. He had been riding his motorcycle on his way to do an errand when he had seen Dawn entering £10 Lane on the afternoon of 31st of July 1986 and he decided to park up, follow her on foot and expose himself to her. He had jogged to catch up with her, ran past her, turned and exposed himself. He claimed that again like Linda, Dawn had instead fled through the gateway into a field and he had followed her, clamped a hand over her mouth and then raped and sodomised her, ignoring her pleas for him not to do so. Afterwards, he claimed she had sat up and said, Have you finished? Can I go now? I won't tell anybody. Please, honest, just go and leave me alone. Please. Pitchfork had ignored this, and had instead strangled Dawn from behind with his forearm across her throat. He then hid the body, and casually returned to his motorcycle and rode off. A DNA test was performed on a blood sample taken from Colin Pitchfork after his arrest and it confirmed that he was indeed the man who had raped and killed Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth. On Monday 21st of September 1987, Colin Pitchfork was charged and remanded at Castle Court in Leicester on two counts of rape and murder, two of indecent assault and the charge of kidnapping of Carol Knight. His trial at the same court lasted just one day and took place on the 22nd of January 1988 where Pitchfork admitted the rapes and murders of Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth, the indecent assaults and the charge of conspiracy with Ian Kelly to pervert the course of justice. He pleaded not guilty to the kidnapping charge. Mr Justice Otten sentenced him to terms of life imprisonment for both murders, sentences of 10 years each for the rapes, sentences of three years each for each indecent assault and three years for the conspiracy charge. Each sentence was concurrent but there was no recommendation for a minimum term to be served which angered police and the girls' families 
as it meant that Pitchfork could be released after having served just 12 years. But the Lord Chief Justice at the time of his sentencing said of Pitchfork, From the point of view of the safety of the public, I doubt if he should ever be released. In the extent it wasn't 12 years, his recommended minimum sentence was set later at 30 years, but in 2009 his minimum term was reduced to 28 years. Pitchfork remains in prison for his monstrous crimes to this day. He has courted controversy over the years since he's been incarcerated. In April 2009, the media reported that a sculpture that Pitchfork had created in prison, entitled Bringing the Music to Life, had been exhibited at the Royal Festival Hall. Pitchfork had made the artwork, which depicted an orchestra and choir, and had been made in what is described as meticulous miniature detail by folding, cutting and tearing the score of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It had been bought for £600 by the Festival Hall, of which Pitchfork received half of this sum, and it was exhibited with a caption saying, Without this opportunity to show our art, many of us would have no incentive, we would stay locked in ourselves as much as the walls that hold us. This caused outrage in the press and from victim advocate groups, and it was soon removed from display. More recently, it is reported that Pitchfork has educated himself to degree level while serving his sentence, and has become an expert at the transcription of printed music into Braille. Classed as a model prisoner, he has also applied for parole as recently as 2016, but this was denied. However, it was recommended by the parole board that Pitchfork be recategorised and move to open prison conditions, and this had happened by mid-2017. The open prison he has been moved to is thought to be Your Majesty's Prison Layhill in Gloucestershire, and Pitchfork has been spotted numerous times out shopping in Bristol whilst out on day release, which is normal as part of the process to assess whether a long-term prisoner is ready for eventual full-time release. The families of both Linda and Dawn have strongly opposed his release on parole, and an online petition set up by the family of Linda Mann calling for his release to be blocked has obtained more than 20,000 signatures. A further 7,000 people have signed a paper copy. The families of Dawn and Linda understandably both feel strongly that Pitchfork should never be released, as they have suffered continuously over the years due to what Pitchfork did. Both marriages of each girl's parents were to collapse under the strain following the murders, and each family has had more than 30 years in which to feel the loss of a daughter or a sister, which can never get any easier. In a recent interview, Linda Mann's mother, Kath, told how she has had to live with the horror of what Pitchfork did. There's always this void, this aching, empty space of what should have been, what my Linda would have done with her life, all that life that she missed. I can never quite accept that. My life is split into three parts. The woman I was before November the 21st, 1983. The woman I was after it. And the woman I fear I'm going to be if or when Colin Pitchfork is released. I'm very fearful that these are his first steps to freedom. It's all happening so quickly. It feels unstoppable. Why should he gain his freedom when our loss goes on forever? Linda isn't here to breathe fresh air, so why should he be able to? When he is on day release, 
Pitchfork is banned from entering the county of Leicestershire or ever having any contact with his victims' families. He is now 57 years old and looks a marked difference from the mugshot taken of him following his arrest in 1987. He is now bald and a white beard covers his features. Both his parents and sister have died in the years since he has been incarcerated and his wife and son have changed their names and moved away to make a new life. So there is little question he could return to any semblance of his old life. What do you think? Is Colin Pitchfork safe to be let out back on the streets, having served his recommended sentence? Or is he still a danger to women? As I said at the start of the episode, the case of Colin Pitchfork is a case I would never normally have considered. I would have considered it too widely known to have featured on the podcast. But I had an opportunity to once again present a case on the anniversary of it beginning, which is too much of an opportunity to let pass by. I also have not come across it broadcast by any other true crime podcasts, unless it has and I haven't searched enough. It is a case I've long been fascinated with, and if you guys are unfamiliar with the case before this episode, there are a couple of books concerning it that I can thoroughly recommend. You have the definitive study of the case in The Blooding by Joseph Wambau, W-A-M-B-A-U-G-H, and it features heavily in a chapter of The Jigsaw Man by Paul Britton, which is a fascinating book and one that I could not put down when I read it first many years ago. The case was also a couple of years ago made into a two-part TV drama called Code of a Killer, and one that starred David Tennant and the one and only Frank Gallagher himself, David Threlfall. It was pretty good and I found that these TV serials that cover famous British cases usually are really good, especially the one concerning the West's appropriate adult that was screened a few years ago. That was excellent, have a look out for that if you can. I find Colin Pitchfork to be a very chilling individual, perhaps all the more chilling because in most of the pictures any search for him show up, he looks an ordinary young married man. He'd been married for a number of years, He had a son, a nice home, and he held down a decent steady job. Yet there was a dark, twisted side and a hidden evil to him, which caused him to go out and commit sickening crimes. He is manipulative and is a serious sexual deviant who I believe is responsible for many more sex crimes than he has confessed to, sexual assaults and possibly rapes that were never reported by the victim. It's hard to believe that someone with such a compulsion to sexually offend such as him could commit a sadistic sex murder and then do nothing for nearly three years. Wouldn't that have eaten away at him like an itch he needed to scratch? Or was he biding his time and ensuring that he definitely wouldn't be caught before doing it again? And has this compulsion likely been treated in the years he spent in prison and he should be allowed out having served his recommended sentence? Or is he a ticking time bomb ready to offend again, like so many people, including the families of his victims, believe that he is. I'd like as always to hear your views on the case of Colin Pitchfork on the discussion thread on the Facebook True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group which will be up shortly following this episode. Open forum guys please hit me with your thoughts. Thank you for bearing with me for going on longer this week the longest episode that I've done to date but as you know by now it's all about the detail and this is a case that you need to do justice to I believe. I hope you've enjoyed and found the episode interesting and entertaining. You can catch me on the usual social media as the True Crime Enthusiast or some variation of that. 
And next week, I shall be back with the episode that was originally scheduled for this week. As I said, it's a shocker, so uh, I hope you'll join me. I look forward to bringing it to you and speaking to you then. As always, this is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, hoping that you all have a safe and happy week. Take care, and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye for now.